Since COVID-19 hit, my life, like many, has been confined to my home. With work hours cut to nothing and outdoor excursions limited to neighborhood walks and a weekly field trip to the grocery store, regular life has never looked more different. But I couldn't help but wonder what the new normal looks like for my friends living in other corners of the world, so I gave them a call. I'm Tahara Faruzin. You're listening to What's It Like? Griever has been living in Taiwan since 2011, but he's originally from Tilly, Alberta, a small hamlet about 20 minutes southeast of Brooks. I met Tyson when we both studied at the University of Lethbridge. It's so crazy to talk to you. It's been such a long time. I think my the memory that sticks out from you the most is um, you did a drag show. Oh, yeah. And... Every once in a while, it comes up in my Facebook memories. <laughs> yeah, I, I get some of those too. And I'm like, oh man, uh, I need to revive Latrina someday, I think. Tyson now lives in Sinchu, located about an hour southwest of Taipei, with his partner and their two dogs. They're both French bulldogs. The older one is about four years old. Um, his name is Cho Dofu, which means stinky tofu in Chinese. <laughs> it's it's a, like a famous uh, uh, traditional Taiwanese food. Uh, <laughs> we, thought, we thought it'd be funny to call him Cho Dofu. <laughs> and then uh, the younger dog, he's uh, about two. And we actually just recently got him. He, uh, one of our friends said that he was looking to, um, looking for a new home for his dog. And we said, well, we've been thinking about getting a second dog. So we took him and his name is Bullet. And he's got a lot of energy and (laughs) he really likes annoying the older dog. Taiwan has done considerably well. When this interview was recorded, there were only around 200 active cases of COVID-19 and six deaths reported. Like, honestly, when I look out the window, I don't see anything different. Um, there are still scooters and cars driving around, people going to restaurants. Um, yeah, I mean, like, honestly, it, it, looking out the window, it looks like nothing is different. I don't know, I guess I have, like, m- mixed feelings about it. We went back to Canada for Christmas, and so we were back in Taiwan probably, like, the first week of January. And I think at that point, they were already talking about it, like the virus. And so I remember by, certainly by the end of January, like, we already had this, like, fear of what was coming. In Taiwan, they'd already um, started, like, I guess, monitoring flights coming in, uh, especially from China by that point, and um, had been advising uh, the general public, anyway, about about what was happening. And so, like, there was a growing fear that there was a, uh, a virus on the way. Um, and so I remember Chinese New Year, we, I, I didn't leave my house. Like there was no, there was no um, 
uh, order from the government to stay home or to do social distancing or things like that, um, as far as I can remember. Um, but I didn't leave my house for two weeks, I think, after Chinese New Year. So it was the Chinese New Year is like a full week, basically. And then for two weeks after that, we just stayed home because we thought that, you know, there was the potential for this virus to be spreading without, you know, any symptoms for two weeks. And, and we were sure there was going to be like a huge explosion in the numbers. Um, but that never happened. And so like when we're sitting at home, like worried about what's, what's about to come, I couldn't help but feel like, you know, people are traveling all over the place right now. And... I didn't feel like the news, what I was watching in the news in Canada and the US um, was really paying attention to this, like they should have. And I guess like, I mean, it was easy for me to, to think that because we had already been uh, told, like, watch out for this, be careful. Um, and so when I'm watching the news in Canada and they're saying things like, um, you know, I guess like saying things to keep people from becoming afraid, I, I wasn't sure if that was the right response. What's it been like being in Taiwan while your family is in Alberta? I call my family once in a while. Like, we can go months without talking on the phone. And I have probably called them in the last couple months more than I have possibly the entire time that I've been in Taiwan. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but it's possible anyway. Like, I, I call them quite a lot now um so yeah I, I do and i we were my my siblings and i were chatting on messenger um all the time just with updates and to see how everyone's doing and what they're doing and um yeah we're just trying to make sure that my parents uh <laughs> really understand how serious this is um because i i think that uh you know certain certain members of my family might be a little stubborn um or not at least indicating that they're not really taking it as seriously as I think they should. Um, so yeah, we do talk quite a lot. So I've been talking to my friends and family back home and watching the news in Canada uh, over the last uh, few months here uh, and just seeing like the things that people feel they need to panic by. Uh, it, some of the stuff is kind of, kind of funny or interesting, I suppose, like... Um, I don't know, like art supplies I heard are, are hard to find or puzzles are hard to find. Um, and of course, like everybody uh, famously knows that toilet paper has been hard to find. Um, and I mean, maybe that's understandable, I suppose, why people would be worried about that. Um, but like here, though, there really hasn't been that same kind of panic buying that you find in other places. Um, so like, for example, there was, uh, masks like early, early on, um, it was hard to find masks. And so what the government did is they started, um, uh, I guess rationing them. They started, uh, say like, uh, people were only allowed to buy a certain amount and then they really quickly, um, put in a system so that they could figure out who was getting masks and how many they could get. And so they, um, they linked it to our health cards and our health national health cards uh, have all of our medical records on it. So if I go to any doctor, 
they can see all of my my history in there and they know exactly like what I've done and and um, what I've uh, said to other doctors and it just makes it really easy that way then to uh, get the correct kind of medical attention I guess um, but they link this to the masks as well and so uh, within like a certain period of time so like I don't know say for example every two weeks I can't remember exactly what the numbers were back then but like every two weeks you could buy a certain number of masks and now it's to the point where you can order them online. I've heard that you could, uh, I'm not sure if this is uh, happening yet, but I've heard rumors that they're also going to allow the system to come to 7-Eleven. So all you need to do is just go down to 7-Eleven and they will, uh, I guess, allow you to uh, get your, your quota of masks for those two weeks. Um, and yeah, so they, they make it really, really simple that way. Um, other things too, like say, for example, toilet paper, that did happen here. Um, strangely enough, it happened quite a number of weeks after places like say Canada and Australia and other parts of the world were panic buying toilet paper. Um, and that did not last very long. Like the, we had toilet paper in our house, um, like ready for like another I don't know, couple of weeks, I guess. Um, just from the package that we had bought earlier. And we decided like, you know what? We don't need to go out there and buy toilet paper now. There will be enough if we just wait like a week or so. And sure enough, the toilet paper was back on the shelf. And then they had started to, um, like there were these signs put up saying like uh, one package of toilet paper per person, which, you know, makes sense. In Taiwan, they started uh, producing their own masks quite early. Like, this is before it really became, like, a huge issue. Um, I guess, like, the thing about Taiwan that made it so different, or what's happened, uh, what happened here is different because uh, they've really learned a lot from SARS. Like, Taiwan got hit pretty hard when SARS happened. Um, and so, like, now, whenever there's, like, a whisper of a virus or some potential for a pandemic, like, they spring into action really early. It's, it feels like to me that SARS is still part of like, you know, the collective memory, I guess here, that everybody just seems to, to talk about it more than whatever we ever talked about in Canada, I think. Even when I first moved to Taiwan, um, like people were still talking about it. My boss at the time was telling me about how like, oh yeah, see that building across the street over there? That, that building was... Um, uh, or like down the street over there, it was, it was, uh, reserved for a like quarantine for SARS. And so you see people with like hazmat suits and things like that. And he said, it was such a weird experience to see that. Um, and I was like, wow, that's so crazy. And people still talked about it, I guess, for all these years. And now that this virus has come up, people are like, Oh, you know what? We know all about SARS. We remember that. Let's do what we need to do. Would you say there was panic considering that Taiwan had already experienced SARS? There was never really a panic here, but there was always like, I would say a healthy fear that this could spread. And like you were saying about how, um, you know, the, the news or people were saying like, the risk is low, the risk of spread is low, the risk of contracting it is low. Like they kept saying that and I'm watching CBC News, uh, The National, you know, when they kept repeating this 
you know, when we're sitting here like locked in our house, the government never told us we have to stay in our house, but we did it ourselves because we figured it was the right thing to do. Um, like obviously like there's recommendations, but we just, for the most part, I think people felt like it was the safest thing. And I'm watching CBC news saying things like the risk is low. And I'm like, no, like you're not safe from this. Like now is the time to react right now is the time to respond. And so I feel like, I don't, I'm not sure what it was. Like there was almost this like idea that this is a foreign disease like we can't get this here because we're Canada <laughs> we're so spread out we're um uh like i don't i don't know i don't know what the what it was but it just to me it felt like as if what people were saying and the kinds of language they were using was wrong in some way like they weren't taking it seriously um Another thing that I'd say maybe is different is that I think that, and maybe maybe I've just been seeing too much of this in like American news and some of these like conspiracy theories on Facebook and things like that, that people are posting. But for the most part here, like in Taiwan, people really seem to trust science <laughs> and their doctors. And when they say like, you know, we need to do this to prevent the spread of the virus. Like people say, yeah, okay, you make a lot of sense because you're the professional. You know what you're talking about. With all the restrictions and recommendations, have you ever felt like the Taiwanese government has infringed on your rights? I never felt like my rights were being taken away here. I don't think there were too many people who were fighting against what the government was saying. Uh, and again, like it's easy for me to say that now because... Uh, you know, people rewrite their own memories. Uh, <laughs> uh, and right now, like, people are feeling pretty um, positive about the government's response because we can see that it's working. Um, I think that early on, like, p there there were some things that people were, were definitely questioning or concerned about, um, like, things like uh, travel, for example. I mean, I don't know if they handled that the right way um, entirely. Like the um, uh, they 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 impose like greater and greater restrictions on people traveling into the country, uh, and eventually it came to the point now where if you are a foreigner, I think I think that's how this works. Like if you are a foreigner, you can't come into the country right now unless you have a I think if you have an uh, like a an, uh, an, a residency certificate or permanent residency here, I think then you should be able to come back in then. But I mean, it it definitely cuts out a lot of people who live here all the time. Like this is their home, but they don't have a residency card for whatever reason. I don't know how long now. Like we've had almost no or no community spread in Taiwan quite a while. Um, the only cases that we get, like these one, two, three, whatever cases, are all from people who came into the country. So what they have been doing here for quite a while is um, anybody, anybody who comes in, whether and regardless of where they're coming from, um, they uh, they come in and this has actually always been there since I have been living in Taiwan. Um, maybe this is something introduced 
around the time of SARS. I don't know. Um, but when you come into the airport, um, they have a, uh, like a thermal scanner, I guess. So you just like walk down the hall and then there's people standing behind a desk and they're watching these screens and it's checking to see your temperature. So you don't have to stop. You don't have to talk to anybody. You just walk right on past. Um, but they're checking temperatures first. And then I guess like they'll ask, um, like they'll ask them about now for, for COVID-19, like they'll ask questions about like, where have you been? Do you have any symptoms? And so, uh, if you say, yes, I have symptoms, I don't know if they're testing everybody, but if you certainly, if you say, yes, I have these symptoms, they will test you at the airport right there. And then uh, you go through, and this is one of my students um, just got back from her internship in Spain. So she was telling me this very recently. Um, uh, then they had to wait in a, in a line um, to take a special vehicle or a special taxi or something that is only designated for people who are coming into the airport. Um, and then they take them in that taxi to a specific like a hotel a quarantine hotel and then they had to stay there in quarantine for two weeks and they have to report like um like if they have any symptoms or whatever else uh, people will call them i think once or twice a day or something like that and like so if your phone dies and they try to contact you and you don't pick up like they will come in and find you basically like they take it really seriously um so you have to report I guess once or twice a day, I think. Um, and then I th I'm not sure if they have to do a test at that point. Um, again, like it depends, I think, on, on certain people maybe um, or when they came into the country. Um, and so then if you pass those two weeks quarantine, then you basically you're released. Um, and the hotel isn't like some, you know, hole in the wall you know it's like uh, one of my my uh somebody i know on instagram who's doing his quarantine right now he's done a week and he was showing the room and it's like a nice modern western style hotel um looks like a fairly new hotel actually um and so he's doing all right he was he was showing the starbucks that one of his friends left a reception for him that he was drinking i asked him if he needed anything he said no i've got too much food <laughs> basically he's doing great <laughs> Um, and yeah, so, so like they, they said that they, and like some other students actually just got back from their internship as well. And they all said like, you know, we were treated really well. Um, it sucks to be in quarantine for two weeks, but everyone's just understands and no one feels like they're being mistreated anyway. Yeah. And that's it. Like, it's just like very strict. Like everybody knows exactly where you are, where you're going, what you need to do. Very well orchestrated. Um, as for people who are getting or who are tested positive for it, uh, as far as I know, they're taken by an ambulance to the hospital. Um, this one uh, article that I read, a, a woman who was telling her story, um, she got out of the, she she was taken by ambulance. She was able to walk to the room, um, and so she stayed in this room until she had tested negative. Um, I don't, I didn't actually say in the article, but I assume like a few times they have to test negative. So there's no like false negatives. And then, and then she's released. Um, but she said that she was, she had lots of food. She felt comfortable. She was okay. She was able to talk on the phone with everybody like during her time. Um, and yeah, she was, she felt good about the treatment anyway.
Uh, and uh, every case right now that's active, uh, they're all in hospital. How do you feel about how things are going in Taiwan so far? I think that that we all feel pretty positive about the response. Um, we like we never had an official lockdown, for example, like like Wuhan, for example. Um, the the government once in a while like will recommend like don't go outside and like send out reminders like stay away from crowded areas. Um, there are things like big events have been canceled since January, I guess. Um, anything that draws a crowd hasn't happened since January. They're doing a lot of tracking, like I think like using phones and things like that, um, like to find out like where people have been, like which areas, and then they send out messages, text messages, uh, or phone calls or something. I'm not sure, but text messages anyway to people saying you've been to this area, you need to stay home for two weeks. But I think it's been really effective. Like, I mean, I know that people don't want that kind of technology falling into the wrong hands, which is understandable. But in a time like this, I don't know, I like to think that I can trust the the Taiwanese government, <laughs> that they're doing the right thing. And so at the moment, I feel okay with it. Um, for example, uh, I guess it was a week ago, uh, the Navy, uh, a ship had just returned uh, from a, uh, a trip that they took to, to help another country prepare for the virus. And when the ship returned, I guess that they had done like their quarantine, I suppose. And then they, they were all released from the ship. But then it was discovered that there was actually cases of COVID-19 like among the Navy on the ship. And so these people had already been left off the ship and had been spreading all over Taiwan. And then, I mean, there are people who are in heaps of trouble now over this. Um, how this would slip through their fingers like this, I don't know. Um, and some people are obviously going to lose their jobs over this. Um, but yeah, they, they sent out a tech or they, 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 uh, talked to all of the people who were on the ship and they found out all the places they had been for, I think 20 minutes or more. And then they had released a map showing all the locations where they could have possibly been and then sent text messages to, I think 200,000 people telling them to stay home for two weeks because they don't know if the virus has spread in these areas. Like, these are people who had potentially been in these locations. Like, when you read the news and you say, like, how do they find this information? How do they, how do they get that? And how do they send it out? It kind of makes you, makes you wonder. Um, but at the same time, though, like, I mean, I, I don't know if there are, if there's a spread of this now. But over the last uh, five or six days since this has happened, um, so far it's only been, like, one new case a day. One new case a day. And it's only people who were on the ship, not people who had come in contact with them. So maybe, I mean, I guess you could see that as uh, very good preventative measures that it didn't become a much bigger thing, at least so far, knock on wood, <laughs> that it hasn't become a bigger thing yet. Taiwan seems to have the virus under control, but I'm sure the country hasn't come out of this unscathed. Like, I say that things feel normal here for us and it's just like our experiences these little inconveniences but it's not like taiwan hasn't been hit by this um like the economy for example 
Like there, there are a lot of people here who are also losing their jobs. Um, and like, I know of companies that are closing down. I've heard rumors of hotels that are closing down. Um, and so like, like people are being hit by this and it's, it seems to be like more here. It's more about the economy, um, rather than the virus itself. How do you think life is going to change after this? Um, I'm, I'm very interested to see, um, where things go after this. Um, I'm very interested to see what kind of studies are done and what kind, like how it changes our cultures. Um, because like, this is, this is a major event. Like this is a huge thing that's happening. Um, and I think that for us to just return to whatever, you know, normal life was before this might, I don't know if it's a good thing. Like there are things I think that we, we've learned that we need to do and to change to become better. And I'm hoping that there are people and governments around the world that are seeing like there are models that are out there that, uh, you know, we can learn from. And I think this is maybe one of those things that's just really frustrating. Here's another that you're, you're asking about like what, what people feel here in Taiwan. I think that people are feeling neglected and uh, pushed aside by the rest of the world. Like how the WHO doesn't allow um, Taiwan to be part of the organization or to be part of the, the assembly. Like when they are, there's all these like reports and all these, you know, ideas going out there about, um, China's influence on the WHO and, um, the, the head, uh, of the WHO being kind of sketchy, like, I don't know. I feel like like Taiwan really feels like they've been pushed into the shadows, I think, when Taiwan obviously has a model that people can learn from. And that Taiwan is a um like it's it's a democracy that wants to be part of the rest of the world and wants to share information and wants to help. And yet there are these leaders out there, these governments out there, or these bodies out there that um, push them out. And then other governments around the world, maybe they think like, oh, yeah, maybe Taiwan has some good ideas and maybe we should talk to them. But feel the same influence or the same pressure from these larger, more influential governments or bodies um, that they just turn a blind eye to it all. Could you briefly explain, if you can, the history of Taiwan? Because there seems to be some confusion around whether it's independent from China or not. Um, I guess what I can say is it's complicated. Like, there's there's your sound bite there. Uh, <laughs> um, oh boy, how can I reduce this into just a few sentences? That That is hard to do. Um, okay, so I can just say like, you know, there's history and there's been, uh, or Taiwan's been passed to like different, um, rulers, I guess, uh, for quite a long time. Um, and 
uh, most recently uh, with the Republic of China. Um, that was the, the government that um, came out of, out of China. Um, and they were pushed out of China by the communists, otherwise known as the People's Republic of China. <laughs> I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes in. Um, and then so the Republic of China set up government in Taiwan and hoped that they or planned to take over the rest of China again in the future. But obviously that never happened. And the People's Republic of China became very strong. And so they're always like arguing over like who is the real China? Is it the People's Republic of China or is it the Republic of China? But then over all these years now, the Republic of China doesn't really exist in the minds of the majority of the population anymore. People here call themselves Taiwanese and identify as Taiwanese. Um, and so uh, I guess the Republic of China was booted out of the UN when the People's Republic of China was accepted because there can only be one China. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the rest is history, right? Uh, so now, because the perception of who Taiwanese people are has totally changed, and the majority identify as, as Taiwanese, like in all ways that a government that a, that a country operates, like Taiwan is a, its own country. They have their own government. It's a democracy. Um, they have their own money. They have their own military. They have, I mean, like, like anything you can think of as a country, like they, that's what they are. That's who they are. Um, and so there's been a lot of fighting anyway and arguing and trying to get back into the UN and be identified and accepted from the, by the rest of the world. But China feels like Taiwan is still part of their territory when the People's Republic of China has never actually existed in Taiwan. They've never actually governed it or controlled it or done anything here. They have no um, uh, presence here. Um, but the rest of the world doesn't really understand that because I think that the People's Republic of China, uh, or China, um, is very good at telling a story and to get people to believe that story and to shut out any other versions or any other uh, uh, tellings, I guess, of that story. Taiwan feels, I think, in many ways, like maybe hurt from this, um, but at the same time, it's nothing new. <laughs> um, but I, I, I also kind of feel too like when I'm watching the news and I'm listening to the health experts out there saying, no democracy has figured out how to control this virus. No democracy out there knows what to do. And I'm like, hello, why are you telling people this? Like, it's right here. And yet, for some reason, you feel like this is accurate information. I, I don't understand that. It's very annoying. Do you hope that this experience will change the way countries and the world interact and view Taiwan? Like, I mean, that's kind of the thing, though. So, like, when, when we experience really hard times, um, it's awful, and no, obviously nobody wants it to happen, but there can also be something beautiful that comes out of it, where you hope that when there are hard times that do inevitably happen, that it brings people together, 
and that good things come out of that. And I guess I, that's really what I'm hoping for this is that it does bring people together. It brings people closer to Taiwan and vice versa. Um, and uh, yeah, that there there is like some something positive that comes out of hopefully new relations from this. Um, there's uh, a, a, a thing that the government's been sending out to other, other governments around the world to, um, I guess, get them maybe to notice and to trust Taiwan or to accept Taiwan maybe a bit more. Um, the, they, they've been sending out this message, Taiwan can help. And so they've been sending out things like masks and other things that, that can help people around the world because we have it available. We are able to, to help people in other countries. Um, and they've been changing that message from Taiwan can help to Taiwan is helping. And I just think that that's really beautiful. That, I mean, that's really what I think people here want to do is I think that, that yeah, people, people want to help everyone else in these times of troubles. Like, we're doing okay, um, and we want to play our part in making sure everyone else is okay, too. That's Tyson Scriever in Taiwan. What's It Like is written and produced in Calgary, Alberta, Canada by me, Tahara Faruzin. The music you're hearing is Massive Attack by Poddington Bear at soundofpitcher.com. Thanks for listening. Stay well.